0: So ladies and gentlemen, before we roll into the interview, um, Ramonza is back as far as I'm concerned. For you, it's a front load. During the course of our interview, Ramonza had an ADHD moment, and I don't say that to belittle anything that happens in this interview during the course of it, but ADHD is a real part of of her life. And as a result, uh, she misspoke on some things and just wants to clear that up prior to the interview. Ramonza?
1: Yes, yes. Poor working memory is a symptom of ADHD, and I am not exempt from that. So during this interview, I um, wasn't able to properly remember the circumstances and particulars uh, around the death of Eric Garner and Alton Sterling, and I swapped those two stories. It just kind of speaks to um, the very random and unjust circumstances under which these black lives were taken. And there are many, many more folks who have succumbed to the same circumstances. And I didn't I also didn't get the chance to acknowledge Sandra Bland, Corinne Gaines, Brianna Taylor, Ahmad Aubrey, and Philando Castile and the Charleston Nine. Ashe, I would like them to be
0: remembered. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? No commercials today. This episode is a challenging one. It was challenging for me as an interviewer. My first question is awful. It framed things well enough, but I should have phrased it better. Also, if I could do it again, I would talk less and listen more. I imagine this episode may be challenging for some listeners of the show as well. It's not the first time we've talked about race and racism on this show, but I've never covered it when things were as charged as they are now, following the death of George Floyd. That said, this is an important episode. I hope you find meaning in it. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Romanza McAllister. Romanza is a psychotherapist and ADHD coach in Brooklyn, New York. She works with adults who have ADHD. Her work centers on racial identity, codependency, and acceptance of the ADHD diagnosis. She serves on the board of the Attention Deficit Disorder Association and leads their African American Black Diaspora Plus ADHD Virtual Peer Support Group. In today's episode, Ramonza shares with us the challenges that Black Americans who have ADHD face in our culture. We discussed the way COVID-19 and civil unrest are affecting her daily life in Brooklyn, New York, the reality of police interactions for Black Americans and how having ADHD affects them, shared trauma, nonviolent ways to resist systemic racism, and who gets to have ADHD. All right, let's get rolling.
1: My name is Romanza McAllister. I'm a psychotherapist and ADHD coach based in Brooklyn, New York and i work with adult adhders centered on racial identity codependency and acceptance of their adhd diagnosis
0: and you're you're in brooklyn new york things have to be intense right now because we're in the midst of covid and we're also in the midst of black lives matters protests with regard to the m- murder in minneapolis of which is a hotbed for lots of things right now because we're in the midst of COVID-19, which is hitting New York exceptionally hard. And also we are in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Yes. And I guess my first question is as an African-American woman and a person with ADHD living in the midst of two incredibly volatile situations or at the very least stressful situations, how does that impact your ability to manage your ADHD?
1: I would say all of my routines have been upended and need to be rearranged, reworked, reconfigured. Um, So for instance, I am in the the middle of the protest. I'm in Brooklyn, again, like you said, hotbed of of all things current in, in the social climate going to the store has now become increasingly difficult because my block is barricaded because there is a police uh, precinct on the other end and they're trying to protect themselves from uh, car burnings or you know whatever they anticipate and so i'm having to be id uh to come and go and um i'm in a i'm in a new area and so most of the residents have not you know had their ids uh switched over to the new address So I I live in fear that I may be uh, carded and then, you know, it says an old address and I haven't, you know, changed, figured that out quite yet. So I have to come and go when I see a person who is either ambiguous or a person of whiteness, I am trying to like scurry in behind them to quickly get to my residence. Again, I'm afraid to go to the store because I feel like I might be targeted Um, because I can be clearly identified as a a protester, even if I'm not involved in protest. And that's scary. That's a scary thing.
0: That you'll just be accused of being a protester when you're not even protesting. You're just buying milk.
1: Buying milk and maybe slammed to the ground, arrested, killed, right? And that's that's a reality for me because um, just as much as, you know, Black men in America are being... Murdered exponent, exponentially. There are dozens of you know black women who have been killed by the police, and their their names go unheard. I fear that some days I I'll be one of them, and so that's kind of um, impacted my experience. And also the, the inequities um, around social distancing. Some ethnic minorities are unpoliced around social distancing. They are a lot. They were they've been allowed to gather in large groups over ten when it was banned. And so going to, you know, black and brown communities, our people are being assaulted, our people are being assaulted, right? The force is excessive. And because they haven't passed or they're not, you know, they're not dead, they're not getting the coverage. It's just another day in blackness. And so as an ADHD or again, you know, as you know, stress exacerbates ADHD, I'm having to uh, come up with different coping skills to manage the racial trauma, anxiety from living with ADHD amongst many things. And sometimes every day that looks different, it's never the same.
0: And that's critical for me to get out there, right? Like I'm trying to use my platform and my privilege to share the stories and perspectives of black folks with ADHD to help my audience that I'm assuming is majority white, get a bit of a perspective that they otherwise don't get to have. I don't have to worry about getting carded if I go shopping, right? Even, even if I lived where you live and I don't, I live in the suburbs. I have like plenty of space and there's not that much pressure here. But even if I did, I had this, what I recognize is a very privileged thought as you were talking about how your address had been changed on your license and you're concerned that that might cause a problem. And I, I sort of thought, well, I would just go up to the cop and be like, Hey, Just to let you know, I just moved here and my license hasn't changed yet. Please recognize my face so that in the future, you and your people who are also kind of keeping an eye on the block will know who I am and that I belong here. And that isn't the reality for you. Like if you were walking towards the police officer, you might not get to say anything to them before things happen and And that may or may not be rough, right? May or may not be excessively violent. and that it, it that's just a critical component to look at and 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 since this is a podcast about ADHD, mm-hmm. I'm sort of framing that around like, look how it makes your ADHD worse, which is also dumb because honestly, it just makes your life worse, and it doesn't matter if you have ADHD or not, right? Like it just makes everything harder when you're dealing with, the level of stress that you're going through right now and i just want to i want to honor that
1: it does um affect how i adhd right and where i adhd meaning what symptoms am i going to allow to be present during that time do i even have control of that in that moment but you know living in this black body i have to be cognizant of that all the time Right, I cannot just approach a police officer to ask a question, and even if I do successfully, I've gone through severe mental gymnastics just to get that done. There's like my heart is racing. I'm one. I'm I'm being triggered by past memories, all to just say, "Hey, is uh, the ice cream store X Y Z way?" And th- that all goes into my interaction. So definitely don't have the same privileges. I have to check myself at all times. I can't afford to be impulsive right, which is a Mm. symptom of ADHD, especially during a time where we're experiencing a collective trauma, and everyone is having a meltdown every other day. So there, not only do I have financial and socioeconomic piece, I have to worry if I'm going to get to live, or just, you know, be. And so that's, that's the, and and while trying to um, outrun coronavirus, that's a lot of things.
0: I want to circle back to something you just said, because I, think i might have a useful metaphor okay you mentioned that in order for you to approach a police officer you have to get past a lot of previous trauma both cultural trauma and personal trauma potentially yes um in order to talk to that police officer so it sounds like in order for you to talk to that police officer you have to get past a wall of awful to do it we white folks don't have a wall of awful for talking to police officers unless we've been in trouble a lot and even then we might not have one and one of i'm in an ally group on facebook and one of the things i started thinking about today was how to reframe the wall of awful to help people who have not had to go through racial trauma better understand it because the wall of awful is a trauma model and it doesn't matter what the trauma is it just has to get reworked. so I'm asking, honestly, because I don't know if I'm right. I'm not black, and I might, I could be screwing this up and be totally wrong. Does that make sense? Does that sound like a tool that might be useful? The idea of the wall of off, and it's an ADHD frame, so I'm going to give it the ADHD frame, and then we'll see where it goes from there. The concept behind it is that every time we fail, we get a brick in our wall. The bricks pile up, right? We get this wall between us and whatever the thing is that we fail at a lot. And it's just this barrier of emotion, failure and disappointment and shame and guilt and and fear and anxiety and all that stuff. And in order to initiate that task or take that risk, we have to engage with these emotions and work through them in order to then begin whatever it is that we want to begin. So in order to go talk to a police officer, you have to first get through, get past this wall of fear in order to do it that's the trauma part is the negative emotions that make up the, the wall. Um, so I just, I think it's critical that, that folks understand that that's there, that, that
1: why the wall exists. Right. Yeah. I think that that's an excellent way to kind of frame it. Like brick by brick, we built this relationship with the police that, you know, is not a friendly one in my black lived black experience? Um, A lot of Black folks would rather call anyone else. They'd rather call Ghostbusters than call the police. It's just that serious. Down to a Tatiana Jefferson, whom her neighbor saw that her door door was left open. He called the police to have them do a wellness check and they ended up you know, killing her. And she was just playing video games with her nephew. Down to, I forgot the other gentleman's name, um, who was in his own apartment. And the officer went into the wrong apartment and Amber Geiger and and, and Kiltip, right? So again, you know, we're exposed to hit after hit after hit and you know, all of that exposure to trauma, whether you experience it firsthand or you hear about it or you're watching it, because these videos of uh Black Death, right, and the looting of black bodies are heavily circulated on social media. What does that say to the AD, the, the black ADHD er? And being an ADHD, I in my opinion, is one of the conditions that are taken uh less seriously than others right like like what is it really just focus and so if you already felt neglected and you have the lived black experience here in america you're like i'm definitely not going to get help no one's going to pay attention to me in my opinion in my experience adhd years are usually um you know sidelined when they go in for a diagnosis or you know they try to express this is what i've been going through people want to medicate them uh give them depression meds, things of that nature.
0: And it's not even just that. People with ADHD are less able to regulate their emotions, right? They're more likely to have strong emotional responses to any stimulating event, right? Anything that might get your emotions up. That means that if I am a Black person, male or female, and I have an encounter with police- Of any gender. Of any gender that I may or may not have initiated, that may or may not be- appropriate. Like maybe I didn't do anything. i was just walking down the street and now some cop is talking at me. Right. I have to keep my emotions regulated because if I don't, I don't know what's going to happen with this police officer. I don't know if he's going to feel threatened. I don't know if he's going to take it as an excuse because that's what he's looking for. I have no idea. And if I have ADHD, it's that much harder for me to maintain my emotions. And that means things are going to go south more easily. They're more likely to, to go wrong. And one of the things that we talked about before we came on is you have this question that, that you're working with right now as you work with your clients and in some of your writing, who gets to ADHD? We talked before the interview started about how so many ADHD pieces of advice are things like go for a jog, go outside, that kind of stuff that is not fraught with peril for people who have ADHD and are white. But for minorities and people of color, a lot of that advice is fraught with peril.
1: Yeah, down to you know how we social distance. Um, I think I I remember seeing some statistics that Black folks have been uh, disproportionately ticketed for social distance violations here in New York City, and there are other ethnic, uh, I'm going to say, minor, other minorities here in New York that have not suffered those consequences. They've gathered without impunity against the law and were even um, escorted home, right? And, you know, down to in, here in New York City and brown and black communities, there's, you know, abuse around not adhering to social distance protocol. And, you know, I'm, I'm here in my home and I'm, I'm watching the, the news and I'm seeing that, you know, white folks are being handed masks and, are, you know, escorted to places that they need to be. And, you know, black people are being assaulted and, you know, heavily ticketed. And I want to say black and Latinx people, specifically here in New York. So just, you know, watching where you step, how you step, what you do. And again, if I'm having a bad day or if I'm coming down from, you know, my dose of Ritalin, whatever medication of my choice, and I'm cranky. And the officer is speaking to me, maybe I didn't hear them, or maybe I had a startled reaction. That is something, you know, in my lived life experience I, that I just can't afford. So that makes me that much more hypervigilant. That makes me uh, that much more uh, anxious, right? And I have to suppress that, that sadness, that rage, whatever it is, because I just have to live to the next moment, get through this experience. I don't get to advocate for myself in that moment and so we're seeing a lot of unrest as in as we're all experiencing a collective trauma who gets to who gets to you know grieve properly right not us we all should be grieving we all, like again it's it's a collective experience we all need to be held we all need to we all need answers and right now racism still persists within a pandemic, and it, it enrages some folks. Some, some people may be watching their television and saying, oh my God, they're out there protesting, but you know, COVID is still alive and well. But a lot of black folks, black and brown folks, are saying, you know, this is, my, this is my day before COVID, right? Like, so it's now exacerbated, and what do I have to lose now? What do I have to lose now? I've been stripped of X, Y, and Z. All that's left is my life and my dignity. Let's
0: have at it.: Yeah, and um, there's a lot in there. And one of the things that jumped out as you were talking, I was imagining myself just walking down a street and a cop says something to me, but I'm in my own little world, I'm having my ADHD inattentive moment, and I don't hear him, right? Like, I just don't hear it. How am I going to be responded to by that cop versus how are you going to be responded to by mm. that cop? And it is not the same. And if you were Roman McAllister, how would he get responded to by that cop? Mm, yeah. And the gulf of the difference is significant. Right. And and absolutely depending on the cop, right? Because there's certainly cops out there who are doing it right. And I don't want to seem like I'm being like anti-cop, they're all bad, because that isn't the case. But it also isn't the case that they're all good, right? Like there's cops who are not doing it right, and we have video footage of that all over YouTube.
1: And, you know, the historical experience of of Black folks in America, right? Traditionally, we haven't had a great relationship, you know, with the police or with government or with authorities, and so I definitely want to acknowledge that there are some officers who are doing it right, but they are, you know, starkly overshadowed by what is going on, what has been going on, you know, for us as a people historically. But yes, um, the differences in the response are, you know, you may be accommodated, I may be tased. And if I were Roman McAllister, I mean, you know, I probably would be dead. But I think even, um, you know, my, my go-to is like, I'm going to die. I don't want to get grim, but it, re- it literally feels like life or death. And I'd rather not engage. And it's just that serious. It's just that serious
0: and i want to echo that because you're not the only black person that i've spoken to who has said that to me you're the only one who said that to me on a on the podcast so far right because it just hasn't come up but but over the past few days as as all of this has gone down um every black person i've spoken to has said that unprompted it's not like i asked it's just some of them within the first two minutes of our conversation of me calling and checking on them or texting with texting to a phone call, right? Um, and that, that has a lot of weight. That should not be, uh, but it is. Um, and so uh, at the risk of losing all of my listeners, I'm gonna pivot <laughs> a little bit because I recognize that we're getting pretty dark and heavy. Um, maybe not the best choice of words because I realized that we're getting pretty heavy. But I, I do want to talk about a little more about the interplay of how, how carrying that emotional load and that trauma, right? And, and you've said shared trauma a few times, and it's, it's clear that you mean everybody, right? You need the whole country, the whole culture of America, and then each individual culture that you may or may not live in. Like I'm sure in Atlanta, it's a little bit different than it is in Baltimore, which is different from how it is up here in Boston, which is different from how it is in New York. But that shared trauma and how I'm having trouble focusing on things, right? Like even in, in our emails for setting up this interview, right? You were like, I'm sorry that I didn't get back to you sooner. And I was like, I don't even care. Like I didn't get back to you quicker because we're both dealing with the trauma of COVID-19 and then also the trauma of just the racial trauma that's going on right now. And, and that racial trauma is affecting me. But I also recognize that I have the privilege of it being not my trauma. I'm not at risk of being killed. I didn't have someone who looks like me die. Um, and, And so although culturally, yes, we share that trauma, it's more acute and it is more personal for people of color. And and the closest I can sort of metaphor this in case anybody needs it, either because they need it to understand or because they need to explain it to someone else, is I kind of think of it as like, that trauma is like the kid of people who are Black, of Black Americans, right? It's kind of their child. They own it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like my nephew. Does that, that make
1: sense? Yes.
0: Is that okay?
1: I understand. Yes.
0: Um, and I don't mean, I don't mean to like, maybe kid is the wrong way to put it because that sort of puts responsibility on people of color, which is not where the responsibility lies. Like the responsibility can, lies with me, like that. but the emotionality of it is, is distant. If that makes sense.
1: Got it. But I, 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 I understood it clearly as, and this is something I have to watch and like look out for and carry. Right. It is very heavy. Right. And so I definitely understood the metaphor clearly. Okay. Clearly, clearly.
0: And I, I honestly, like, this is a hard conversation and I don't know where I'm going. And I just want to own that up front. Like it's.
1: Oh, that's what it's about.
0: Yeah. And, and that's, that's why I'm having this conversation is because it's hard. And, and because like my audience is going to be like, Brendan, seriously, this is like the second <laughs> time we've talked about this specific topic in like a month. I don't know. I'm going to answer. Suck it up, Buttercup. It's a conversation that needs to happen.
1: The unrest speaks to that, right? Like being dismissed and like, can't we table this? Now is not the time. You're hearing that a lot in the news, especially. I I don't know the mayor of Minneapolis's name. I don't know his name, but each time this does occur, there's always this is not the right way to protest. You kneel. This is not the right way to protest. You stand. This is not the right way to protest. You sleep. This is not. You loot, this is not the, you know, looting is a response to um, being ignored and it's the language of the marginalized and that that doesn't have a color. Mm -hmm. And so you have to look to what is going on in society to say, why are the people looting, right? Why are the people destroying things? Like what is happening? It is not criminal activity, it's the language of the oppressed and it's the language of the weary. And so when we dismiss it, we feed it. And we have to be careful of how we we frame it. And so yeah, it's a very heavy subject matter. But again, you see a lot more allies joining in because they too are tired. And I think right now, this is just my personal thing, America feels like the stepchild of the world because they're having to witness these other countries provide uh, effective social programs and relief for their populace, while, you know not I'm not down talking this country in any way but again if we want to boast and say that we're from the greatest country in the world we you know we need a bit more supports and and that is evident now and so people are joining in because it's just social unrest there are all types of folks down there protesting not just folks of color
0: so there's a thing that I um I got in an argument with a guy on Facebook about um earlier today His view was like, it's okay that there's violence coming out every night when these protests hit, because that's the only way to like bring about systemic change. And I was bothered by that because this is a white dude. The reason it offended me was because if you have a protest that is about Black Lives Matter and that protest ends in violence. And that violence is being committed by white people who are breaking windows, which is what's going on right now, at least in everything I've seen. I don't care who those white people are. It doesn't matter if they're anarchists or white supremacists or anti Fa that people like to talk about. I don't care who it is. What those people are doing is hiding behind Black people and hiding behind the needs of Black people because the folks that are going to get blamed for the violence is the black people. The people who are going to get blamed for the property destruction is the black people. So if you want to have your violent protest, just have another protest and (laughs) call it like, I don't like the system protest. Right. And tally ho. Right. That's fine. Don't hide behind the real genuine pain of African-Americans so that you can tell people you don't like Donald Trump?
1: I love that you brought that up because there is a way to perform right allyship, right? And there is a way to, and I I, I am used to, again, in my lived Black experience, I am used to watching other movements co-opt, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't have direct ties to the Black Lives Matter movement, but it is still a part of, you know, my work. My being who I am, and so to watch it be, you know, misused, uh, misconstrued, and you know, labeled as um, a terrorist group—that is very uh, disturbing. That's very disturbing. Again, we went back to looting as the language of the oppressed, and you'll see that dynamic in like any society, right? And so we we have to be careful as not to uh, color a movement or a certain type of behavior you know, and uh, assign it to only a specific group of people, but even more so, check your privilege, right? Like before you uh, run to the front lines to incite violence, think about who will pay the price, right? Listen to those who have a stake in what is going on and be present in that. And that, that is right allyship.
0: I've seen so many videos of, usually it's a black woman, trying to get a white man to stop spray painting things or breaking windows or stealing stuff and just constant, constant, like, stop, stop, stop. And then they just get ignored and the person goes off and does whatever destruction that they're doing. And it it, it enrages me. But I, I want to circle back to looting is the language of the oppressed. And I want to push back on that a little bit and just like, what do you mean? Because I don't, I don't think I really understand it. And I want to, so I want to hear that. I want to hear that perspective.
1: It's the same reason why any, any country or any group would enter into any revolution, right? It's only because it's racialized. It's looked at as, Oh my God, these folks are out of control and you don't really get to um, speak to what got them to this point. Again, it's like demonization and criminalization. If I took video from one angle and you took video from the other, we would have um, two different stories, and there is this language in the media that constantly demonizes Black and Brown folks, right? You could say a person gathered was gathering food for their family um, after realizing that they were, you know, no longer employed at such and such, and then you, or you can say Dad steals or a Black man steals from such and such store, and it could be painted two different ways. Were you trying to feed your family, or were you breaking it into? Stealing. And we see this uh, come up in the media all the time, demonization of brown and black folks, right? Because it fits the storyline.
0: So there's sort of two, there's two things that you're saying, and I want to kind of tease them apart. One is stealing to fulfill a need, right? Like you steal the loaf of bread because you don't have any food, mm-hmm. a la Les Miserables, which people love and support. the Hurricane stealing. Katrina. Right, right. Um, And then there's the other side of that, right? Which is like the anger and the frustration of being mistreated for so long. Right. And I want to play in there because I think it's maybe potentially a little harder to understand, Mm -hmm. except that it's incredibly easy to understand because most of the parents listening to this podcast right now have a kid with ADHD who goes through phases where he is or she is enraged because they go to school and they get in trouble. They don't know why, or they can't get their homework done and they, they just can't perform at the level that they want to be able to perform at, or, or they, they just get angry because they're not, their needs aren't being met for whatever reason. In previous episodes of this podcast, when I've interviewed people, African-American people and, 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 and black women, cause I haven't had a black man on yet and done this conversation. I need to, I just have to find one.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, In previous episodes, I always draw that parallel between like the pain and suffering and struggle that we as people with ADHD go through
1: Mm
0: -hmm. is not dissimilar to the pain and struggle that people of color go through. It The causes are different. The level of intensity is different. I'm not trying to equate the two in that way. But as a metaphor for understanding, I think it's a useful tool. And so am I on to something with like the ADHD kid who gets angry and like squares at his teacher as like a microcosm and a small with the volume turned down of what we're seeing now?
1: I think if you want to speak to what you call what people would call acting out behaviors, people may view it as such, but also it is just civil unrest. It's it is the degradation of someone's humanity. And I think it is a part of the human condition to push back on that. So what we are also seeing is human behavior, period. But again, it is being racialized, but we can also liken it to if you are an ADHD or who's participating in the protest, whether black, white, or brown, are you going to escalate uh, quicker than a neurotypical person? Maybe so, maybe so, but I, I, I think I do want to link the two I, I want you and i think you're speaking to um rejection sensitivity dysphoria somewhere in there right like having that lived experience as an adhd but i want to magnify that times 20 right in the, the black american experience i can't speak for all but right again just what you see here and experience on the daily you know magnify that what what must it be to uh live with uh, rsd and then to be humiliated through microaggressions outright racism gaslighting and, and being dismissed you know what's your level of ego support around dealing with that surviving trauma takes a lot of coping skills and supports right and so and access to resources so again if in your lived experience, you have limited access to resources and supports and you're always being dismissed, that makes resilience that much harder.
0: Even in terms of resources, right? Like we had some friends come up over the weekend from Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? Who Cambridge is as maybe not as densely populated as New York, but comparable. When we have people come over, they didn't come into our house or anything. We watch a movie in our backyard because we have a big, a relatively big backyard. It's not huge. But um, we can social distance and I have a projector and a screen because I am a professional speaker. And so we watch a movie in our backyard once a week and we had our Cambridge friends come up and they were commenting on the availability of space in our backyard. The fact that we could even do that at our house because they can't do that at their house. That's not a thing that they could do. They don't have enough room.
1: Big impact on ADHD and self-soothing
0: and on COVID-19 right and that's a resource right like space is a resource the availability of that
1: definitely increases survival rate the ability to social distance and who has that privilege yeah
0: and what i guess what i'm hoping to do with this episode and and i imagine you're hoping something similar and feel free to tell me what you're hoping to do once i'm once i shut up um is to put some compassion and some empathy onto the face of of African Americans and and black Americans and people of color who are living through so very many layers of trauma right now, above and beyond the layers of trauma that white Americans are living through. Because certainly certainly white Americans are going through a lot right now, but it's not as much and it's not the same. Um, And layering onto that ADHD, layering onto that, being an African-American, um, the difficulty and the challenge of navigating your day. Right. Um, so I kind of want to circle back to that, I guess, like, like that. And that's kind of why I started where I started was like, what, how much harder is it? Right. Like what, how does this affect your ADHD? Um, because that's what helped me become anti-racist, right? Mm -hmm. Like what helped get me there, 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 there were two or three things that got me to anti racism right the first thing is podcasting not this show but podcasts in general cuz i'm going to be straight up and honest after september 11th i was terrified i was scared i started listening to talk radio and they hooked me man they got me to be an angry white dude okay and then i started listening to podcasts and what happened was i stopped listening to to talk radio and i got back to my caring person that i had been previously and then My buddy, Benari, who I went to high school with, uh, became a writer on the nightly show with Larry Widmore. (laughs) And so I watch that show all the time because Benari's my friend. Right. And I watched like the first episode or whatever. and was like, oh, I know all this stuff. Like I've had this this sensitive perspective and awareness of the African-American experience, because when I was in high school, I was a hip hop kid in a rock and roll world. And I was listening to like Belle Biv DeVoe and Ice-T and Tupac and the whole nine yards in my white suburban town in Massachusetts. <laughs> and I would, there was like me and one other kid. And so I had heard those stories and none of that was a surprise. And I was like, how did I forget all this stuff? And it was because I got scared. That's what happened. I got scared and I got angry because that's what those, what talk radio does. And, right. and it got me. Um, and so those two things pulled me out of my very narrow perspective and allowed me to see the bigger world. And. And, uh, and then I started connecting the dots between ADHD and trauma and then going to African-American trauma or, or GBLT person and trauma or whatever. That's sort of how I got to where I am now. And I guess because I'm see I see the parallels between the struggles of folks with ADHD and the struggles of anybody else who struggles, doesn't matter. Right. In coming on the show today, was there anything that, that you were hoping to, to accomplish with this episode?
1: I initially started um, talking with folks about this to kind of uh, push the needle on content that was being provided on surviving COVID-19 with ADHD. And again, it came, in my opinion, it came from a point of privilege. And I wanted to, you know, speak to those who don't have those resources, who are probably COVID positive or caring for those who are COVID positive or grieving at this point, right? So our our routines are going to look different and we do have to make space for grief and healing. And a lot of it, was, it seemed to just center on bullying through and assume that people had um, had not experienced loss. And that that really stuck with me. So I wanted to kind of say like, hey, we don't all have the, li- the same lived experience. We don't have all have the same social upbringing. And I, if we're going to be addressing neurodiversity, in, a, like in the uh, mental health space, we absolutely can't leave out diversity and equity, period, right? Because that, you know, it lends itself to that. And so it all comes full circle, you know, that we, we need to use a more humanistic lens and um, treating our clients, in assessing their needs, you know, according to the, who they are, where they are, and what they have access to, and what systems, um, you know, they have to answer to. Right. Simply put, again, we spoke about the fact that I cannot just go up to a police officer. I may or may not be able to, but I, I, I wouldn't think that I could just go up to a police officer, tap them on the shoulder and get a uh, favorable response. And so we have to talk about our differences and how that impacts our diagnosis.
0: And just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience?
1: I think the way that you could support uh, Black Indigenous or person of color going through a tough time right now is by um, learning the love language of helping them to learn the love language or practice the love language of advocacy, rest, resilience, and assertive self-care, and that is how you can be an ally. And if you are a Black and Indigenous and person of color having a hard time, you know, during this pandemic, right, whether it be around police brutality. Racism or just COVID itself, right? Due to systemic racism, again, rest and then you know, practice an active resistance. And resistance doesn't have to be violent, right? And I'm not I'm mutual on this, but resistance can also be advocacy through language, advocacy through education, advocacy through you know, pushing back through creating and engaging in safe spaces right now. We definitely need to just love on ourselves, rest, and then rise another day to resist this.
0: Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at Essentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.